Welcome to the University of Bath Thought Train podcast. I'm your host, Sam Bradley. Today we're joined by the University's Head of Physics and Professor of Extragalactic Astronomy, Professor Carol Mundell. Thank you for being here. Hello. So, first of all, not dissimilar to the Big Bang, we're going to start very, very small and then move out. Um, what is extragalactic astronomy? Well, technically, extragalactic astronomy is the study of everything in our universe outside of our own Milky Way galaxy. So extragalactic, it refers to our own galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally have an interest in extreme physics, um, in regions of space where black holes have formed or are forming um, or are affecting their environments. And so I look at very distant s- systems, um, black holes that have formed at the edge of the distant universe, but also nearby systems like galaxies. Um, so wh- how stars form, how structure forms in the universe, how galaxies form and evolve, and how extreme processes happen, how magnetic fields drive charged particles and um, black hole systems eject great plumes of plasma. And so all of those things happen outside of our galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, at Bath, we do have um, a very energetic and growing astrophysics group um, and some of our researchers actually work on objects that are in our own Milky Way. Um, one of our prize fellows is actually working on variable stars and what she's doing is she's looking to see how the starlight flickers but she's using that to measure the distance scale of the universe so she's connecting galactic science and star science with the, how the universe expands and evolves so it's connecting all of those things together. A truly incredible job description. Indeed, so. yes. So what is it about, I know um, a lot of your research is on black holes, why are they such a significant uh, factor, if you like, in the building blocks of space? Well, black holes were actually predicted um, from Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity back at the beginning of the 20th century. And he discovered the laws of general relativity and wrote down a, a seminal equation, and he published that in 1915. And other scientists tried to find solutions to that equation. There were only three exact analytical solutions that were have ever been discovered. One of them predicted expansion of the universe, which we've now experimentally proved is, is happening, mm-hmm. although we don't fully understand it, but we know that that's been confirmed. The second um, predicted the existence of black holes, at least in theory, and we've now proven that they exist at copious quantities in the universe. And the third was a prediction of gravitational radiation or gravitational waves, so literally ripples in space-time itself and they were first detected uh, and announced back in 2015 and you know that's potentially a Nobel Prize winning discovery. So those three predictions from that equation um, really revolutionized uh, modern physics and modern astrophysics. In fact general relativity now underpins how our sat-navs work. Um, They've opened up a whole whole new industries like precision agriculture where farmers don't have to actually drive their tractors, they can send their autonomous robotic systems off and they know precisely where they are because the sat-navs use satellite technology that has general relativistic corrections um, in their mathematics in the computer systems. So black holes came out of that structure and we've now discovered all sorts of different manifestations of them because of the advance of technology in the 21st century. People listening to this are going to get bored of me saying wow. (laughs) Wow's fine. They they deserve wow. How does relativity affect stuff like sat-nav then? Just break that down. 
So when, when you're at school and you learn about the laws of motion, you tend to learn about Newton's laws of motion, so force equals mass times acceleration. Um, and we can use Newton's laws of motions in our daily life. So at the normal speeds that we, we move at, Newton's laws work fine. But of course, if you start to move very quickly at the speeds the satellites uh, orbit above the Earth, or in fact you go to places where the gravity is very strong, so if you are close to a black hole, or even if you're a ray of light and you're coming by the sun, you will actually feel the gravitational pull of the sun. Um, when Einstein wrote his equations down, he realised that Newton's gravity was a special form that works only in certain circumstances, and Einstein's theory was much more general and more all-encompassing. And the first experimental proof that this was the case um, was when um, an, an astronomer actually went to see a solar eclipse, a full solar eclipse in 1919. And the idea was that the sky would become dark as the moon went across the face of the sun, and there was a little bunch of stars to the side of the sun in the background mm -hmm. um, that could then be seen in the momentarily dark daytime sky. Right. And Newton's gravity law predicted that they should be um, pulled away from the position that they should be by the gravitational pull of the sun by a certain amount. Einstein's equations predicted a bit more of a pull, so a distortion of the space-time around the sun mm -hmm. because of the sun's own gravity. And that was the first experimental proof that Einstein's equations were right, because in fact, when the astronomers developed the photographic plates of the solar eclipse, they could see that the stars were displaced from where they should have been by the amount that Einstein predicted, not Newton. So the light was coming off those stars being bent by the gravity. Exactly. Right, so it's and that's like why the, it's in the wrong place. Okay. Right. So how does that? How do we get from there to satnavs then? So when our satellites are whizzing around the Earth, yeah. they have clocks on board, mm -hmm. and those clocks will go at a certain speed. And if we put the equations in uh, for special relativity and for Newton's laws of motion, we'll get the slightly wrong answer. And so when you then use your, your timing devices and try to navigate where you are on the Earth, mm -hmm. it will actually tell you you're in the wrong place compared to where you are by quite a significant amount. Yeah. You then have to put the added corrections into account for general relativity, and then you get the right answer. And that's how we can locate where we are so accurately on the Earth. If we didn't know about general relativity, we'd just always be having to put corrections in, and we haven't quite. You'd be got a couple of right. seconds behind. That's right. And you'd be example. you'd be several several miles away from where you thought you were. One more thing, Einstein's done for us. Absolutely. <laughs> so you mentioned space time there. Um, just define that because I feel like that's going to come up a lot in yeah. our discussion. What is space time? So again, this was the revolution that Einstein introduced. Previously, we thought of space and time as two separate entities. But he showed mathematically, and working with eminent mathematicians like Emmy Noethe and um, David Hilbert, that actually this is, um, you can write this all as one. And so space and time all become just different pieces of an equation. They have the same kind of format, and they become combined together, so you don't separate them out. Um, the maths of that is then what then helps you to, to get the, the laws of physics in the universe. Right? So is it, a, and again, forgive my ignorance, but is it a wave? Because I know there's a lot mm. of thought about whether gravity, or sorry, light, mm. 
is a wave or a ray and do stop me if I'm going way off. So space-time is, is what exactly? Well, well, light can be thought of as a ray um, or a particle, so a wave or a particle. Mm. We know that it can behave in both ways. Right down at the quantum mechanics level, we know that we have to think of light sometimes as particles. And again, Einstein did some work on this. Um, in terms of space-time, you write that you can actually get ripples in space-time. So when two black holes crash together, they will actually disturb the space-time around them and you may have seen some of the, the movies online when two black holes merge together, you get a sloshing effect. So they spin, they get faster and faster, and eventually mm -hmm. they merge together, they make one big black hole. Right. And that sloshing point then produces lots of ripples. So it's a bit like throwing a pebble into a pond. Yeah. Those ripples then spread out through the fabric of space-time in the universe. Mm -hmm. and millions of years later, they pass through you and me. And right now, there are ripples in space-time that have been produced like that, that are now stretching and squishing us by the tiniest fraction of an atom. And, the, and the, the, the alteration to time as we perceive it, you know, hours, minutes, seconds, mm -hmm. it's so minute that you, you never know. It's not like, I think a lot of sci-fi sort of TV sort of, if you mess with time, it either breaks or you jump around a lot yeah. and you lose an hour here that's and an hour right. there, but that's not in the realms of no. possibility. You, you can be quite creative, I think, in science fiction as to how, mm. how you how you play with this. Uh, the way physicists think of space-time is that it's all together, um, and so these ripples that then come through us, yes, time time is part of that metric, but it's mm. not a separate part, so they can't be separated. So it's very much that, that difference between something moving in an ether as a function of time versus the nature of the fabric of space-time itself that we we're all in so you know matter tells uh, matter and energy tell space-time how to bend and space-time tells matter and energy how to move and that's really the bottom line of Einstein's equations it's very succinct thank you very much you've been thinking about that for I'm, a long time I'm thinking about a lot of stuff right now <laughs> so uh, black holes I think a lot of people have this notion uh, again perhaps from movies and tv that it's just like a great big sinkhole in the fabric of reality mm. that everything gets pulled into and obviously the gravitational pull is very strong. Um, how close is it safe to be to a black hole? I mean, what's the closest one to Earth, for example? Yeah, so I think that, that popular misconception of black holes being great big cosmic vacuum cleaners, fortunately we're, we're not in any danger. Um, in terms of supermassive black holes, so those that are a million to a billion times the mass of our own sun, we have one in the centre of our own Milky Way galaxy. Mm -hmm. We think all big galaxies have these giant supermassive black holes at their centre. Because they're dead stars, aren't they? They're stars that have collapsed or, or well, burnt out. That's right. I mean, there are, let me just sort of backtrack a second. There are different um, types of black holes, and so we have stellar mass black holes, which are a few miles across they're about mm -hmm. the mass of our sun and you're right we think they're the kind that form from the collapse of massive stars okay. so massive star gets to the end of its life it blasts its outer regions off and its center collapses can't sustain itself under that pull of gravity and it forms a black hole um, we think the supermassive kind, they may have begun like that in the very early universe with the first generation of stars. We actually don't know the origin of these. There are theories about seed black holes. But we found that the mass of supermassive black holes seem to be very closely related to the mass of the, the bulge of the galaxy that they live in. We don't really know how those two get so closely correlated, but we know that either black hole seed galaxies or galaxies grow black holes it's a chicken and egg we don't know which came first right, okay. and so well, that's one of the frontiers of astrophysics trying to understand the the role of black holes in galaxy formation mm -hmm. and evolution those black holes um, as i say a million to a billion times the mass of our own sun and they're about the size of the solar system and extent 
Um, now, certainly if you get close to an event horizon, you don't want to fall over an event horizon because that's, that's the end of you. Um, What's an event horizon? So an event horizon is a, a theoretical idea of where the edge of the black hole is, if you like. And there's much debate about whether that's a clear edge or whether it's a fuzzy edge. Once you're over that, um, the escape velocity is or the speed at which you would have to go to escape the gravitational pull of the black hole mm-hmm. is equal to that of light, and so you can't escape. Right. So simplistically, I think of a, a black hole as a region of space inside which the pull of gravity is so great nothing can escape, not even light. So if you were an astronaut and you were falling over the event horizon and you tried to use a, a, a torch or a flashlight to send a signal back to your family, they would just see the last flash, the last signal, they'd think, okay, that's fine, you would carry on falling into the black hole. Now, if you fall close to a stellar mass black hole, you get ripped apart or spaghettified uh-huh. uh, before you get over the event horizon. Okay. In a supermassive black hole, you probably transition fairly painlessly. You wouldn't necessarily know you'd fallen over the event horizon, and then after that, you would gradually um, get more spaghettified and ripped apart because the pull between your feet and your head would then be so great. But material doesn't pour into black holes in the universe because... The regions in which these things form, um, the material around has what we call angular momentum. Um, And this is orbital energy in the same way that the planets don't all fall into the sun. We go around the sun Mm -hmm. because of the way the solar system formed. Um, Material at the centres of galaxies is orbiting black holes. So it's actually remarkably difficult to make stuff go into black holes. You really have to push yeah. it, and actually, quite literally. Literally, and a lot of the material, we try to understand how you remove angular momentum to feed black holes. We know black holes grow, but we also know that great plumes of material gets ejected from black hole systems. Right. So it's a bit like cosmic indigestion, really. And how does... That's great. <laughs> how does that link to uh, wormholes? Because I hear a lot of people think that black holes, maybe when you go, you actually come out of another black hole. Is there any truth in that? Well, I'm, I'm an observational astrophysicist, so I'm an experimentalist, and so there's no evidence, um, no data that supports that yet. Um, my theoretical colleagues work very much on the mathematical frameworks. Mm-hmm. You know, I have colleagues in, in mathematics who work on a completely different um, perception of black holes to me. To me, it's right, as, right. I, as I've described to you at the centres of galaxies. For them, they're working in higher dimensions. Um, they might be working with you know five dimensions, eleven dimensions, and they're trying to understand beyond the current laws of physics how things work. And there you have theories of, of wormholes and multiverses, and they're very interesting mathematically, very very cha- <laughs> challenging for me as an experimentalist. So the minute my, my mathematical theoretical physics colleagues give me a testable prediction, mm-hmm. then I'm very happy to go and build the experiment to prove whether or not wormholes exist. Well, let's move on from black holes then, because I feel like I could probably take up a whole show and probably many more talking about black hole onto something else uh, that meant you were in the news about a couple of months ago, the gamma ray burst. Tell us about that. So I'm afraid I still have to keep you on the topic of black holes because we okay. think gamma ray bursts are driven by black holes. Fantastic. Um, so gamma ray bursts are brief flashes of very high energy gamma rays, so higher than X-rays, that come from cosmic sources. And that's super dangerous, isn't it? Gamma rays are the strongest type of radiation. That's right, say. yeah. Unfortunately, they don't penetrate the Earth's atmosphere. Our atmosphere is currently opaque to gamma rays. That's why our detection... Um, equipment is on satellites above the Earth's atmosphere. So we have satellites that orbit the Earth and look out at the sky to see whether they can see these these flashes of gamma rays. They were originally discovered um, in the late 1960s, early 70s by military satellites that were observing the Earth looking for violations of the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which would have caused similar yes. kinds of flashes yeah, in their that, detectors. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure it was a fairly stressful 
few days or weeks. I'm not that sure how long. <laughs> the the first shift. detections, yeah. So, oh, what's this? Uh, center of the Cold War. Fortunately, the scientists involved discovered very quickly that they were extraterrestrial signals. They were not coming from Earth. Um, at that time, though, it was very difficult to localize where they were on the sky. And if you ask any friend who has a telescope and they use it in their garden, if you said to them, can you go and look and see if you can find a, an optical counterpart to that gamma ray flash, they'll say, well, where do you want me to look? Up there isn't good enough. Yeah. Definitely not accurate enough. So for many decades, um, the field really languished. We didn't really know what they were. Um, there were other gamma ray satellites that were launched. Lots of people worked on timing studies. So some of these things are shorter than the blink of an eye. Some of them last for tens, hundreds, we now think tens of thousands of seconds. So there's a huge variety in how long the flashes lasted and what the energy properties of the light were. But the big breakthrough came in 1997 with the launch of a new satellite called BEPO-SACS, which was actually able to detect the X-ray radiation, which was much more long-lived. So 10 hours after the original few-second flash of gamma rays, you could still see the X-ray light. Mm -hmm. So these so-called dying embers or afterglows then allowed optical astronomers to look for the optical light because the localizations were much more accurate. So we then figured out that they weren't coming from our own galaxy. Um, they were evenly distributed across the sky, so there were some theories that they were in our own Milky Way, but it was proven that they lay in very distant galaxies. So my team have been using and pioneering techniques with fully autonomous robotic telescopes around the world, because these things have gone so quickly. And what we've been doing is developing new technology to look at a special property of the optical light called polarisation. Um, and that's a bit like the glare that you get on a winter's day right. when the sun um, is low in the sky and you, mm -hmm. the road's wet and you, you have to put your Polaroids on, not to block the brightness of the sun out, but actually the, the glare. glare. So we've been trying to measure that glare because it gives us the only direct probe of magnetic fields close to the black hole. With sunglasses made of lead, I assume. <laughs> well, no, because this is the visible light. So just regular old pieces of Polaroid that we spin and we stick in front of our, of our CCD camera. Um, and then what that does is the visible light that comes through and does reach us through the atmosphere mm -hmm. and is coming from the, the direction of the gamma ray flash. Um, when we measure the, the properties of that light, we're able to actually determine the degree of polarisation if the light is polarised. If it is polarised, it tells us something very fundamental about whether there are magnetic fields forming near the black hole. And again, there's no reason to be... I mean, a lot of people get scared of black holes, and there's a theory that says, well, one day our sun will become a black hole. Similarly for these gamma-ray bursts, they're so far away, and our atmosphere is designed to handle it so we're not in any danger from gamma ray bursts? I, I hope not. I mean, first of all, our sun probably won't become a black hole. It's not massive enough. Um, right. It may actually, it will grow and gradually blow its outer layers off and become a, a red giant, which may toast the Earth, so that's probably something else to worry about, but uh, certainly billions of years are away yet, yeah, so we don't need to get worried now. we need to be concerned <laughs> exactly. with in the next week Absolutely or so. Absolutely not. There are some ideas that, you know, maybe gamma ray bursts in the past, if they could happen in our Milky Way, they might have been, you know, responsible for various extinctions um, it's very difficult to really? prove. Yeah, it's very difficult to prove whether that's the case. Um, we certainly think that these very powerful gamma ray bursts are unlikely to be possible in our Milky Way galaxy because we think the kinds of stars that produce them are very massive. They live fast, they die hard, and they form in parts of very distant and young galaxies that haven't produced enough metals yet. So they're quite metal-poor galaxies. They haven't had many supernovae or generations of supernovae to cook up heavy elements that, that make us, really. 
Um, so we're hoping that <laughs> that's the case. Although we we did find a, a monster burst in 2013 that was quite close and surprised us all and made us think that we might have to reassess those those theories a little. Where bit. did that? Come, how close was that? Where did that well, come that's what from? we call about a redshift of 0.3, which for Earth-based scientists doesn't seem very far, but on the scale of gamma ray bursts is actually the, the lo- relatively local universe. Um, and that was the first full-powered one we'd found, found that close. Fortunately, they tend to put their beams of light out in very um, focused beams, almost like a, a, a laser pointer, if you like. Right. So most of them point away from us, which is probably our, our saving grace. But yeah, you asked about me what, hap- what happened in July. <laughs> so in July, we published a paper on um, a, a very exciting burst that we'd detected the previous year. And the reason we use our robotic telescopes is because we get no warning. We don't know where or when one of these things will occur. And we don't have very much time to get onto the right part of the sky because the thing fades away very quickly. And this big burst was very cooperative, if you like. So there was a little one-second flash which alerted the gamma-ray telescope, Fermi satellite, which is a NASA satellite. And that satellite then alerted the ground-based telescopes and astronomy teams that there was this flash. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of hundred seconds later, the really big explosion then went off. So our telescopes were all on that part of the sky, ready and waiting. And so we made the first measurements of the polarised properties of the light during the gamma-ray flash itself, um, which helped us to see the black holes close, the magnetic fields close to the black hole, closer than we'd ever seen before. And what were you doing when that happened? Did somebody call you? Did you get a text from? So what happens with with my 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 team and our technology is I actually get an alert on my mobile phone mm-hmm. um, to say that our telescopes have kicked into action, the black holes formed, and we've detected it. Um, I was working with some collaborators. Um, the, the paper we actually wrote was with a, a different set of collaborators from different telescopes called the Master Telescopes, a Russian team. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were already on, on target. Um, I was actually following up with our team's different telescopes. Um, so that was very exciting. And what we do is when we discover something, we put an email circular out and it goes out to an exploder and about a 1,000 astronomers worldwide will then receive that message instantly. So we were all following the circulars and watching um, mm-hmm. our, our science efforts evolve in real time, which was very exciting. I bet it's really exciting. <laughs> yeah, quite stressful as well. I can imagine. <laughs> and are they quite frequent? Do you expect to see another one in your lifetime? Or yeah. is it that they come, there is no... Yeah. pattern to it? Or? Well, there's no pattern to it, certainly. Um, bizarrely, it always seems to be a Friday night and a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly, we've, we we get about 200 triggers a year. Oh, right, okay. Um, so part of that is determined by the detector properties of the gamma ray detector. So there are two satellites up there that we mainly use, SWIFT and Fermi. They're both NASA satellites. There's also um, a European Space Agency satellite called Integral that does look into the Milky Way, so will occasionally give us um, very nice triggers um, automatically from there. So, yeah, they're not incredibly rare. They're not once-in-a-lifetime events. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, as we develop our top technology, we expect to detect more of them. And what can we... Um I mean, can we use that discovery at all? I mean, what's the? is there any application to it, or are we just witnessing the acts of the heavens, so to speak? Well, I think, first of all, for me, the gamma-ray bursts are interesting for two reasons. One is that they allow us to test and probe physics in regions that are so extreme we can't replicate those on Earth. So we have particle accelerations far in excess of anything you can get at particle accelerators like CERN, large magnetic fields, strong gravity. So we can really test our laws of physics in a way that we can't do on Earth. Because they're also the brightest objects in the universe, 
we can use them as probes of the distant universe and we can actually measure how the earth has evolved the universe has evolved so i think in terms of understanding our place in the universe they're, mm-hmm. they're great beacons and probes for that um, the other big questions that we're trying to answer though is how you produce the beams that produce the gamma ray light so we know that these are very energetic plasmas of probably electrons and positrons maybe protons as well and we know that they're ejected out from the black hole system as it forms and many of these jets especially when you look at the kinds that are produced by supermassive black holes they're the largest continuous fluid flows in the universe and we don't actually know theoretically how to stabilize them over those scales so there are um, some scientists who are working, um, for example, Professor Paul McKenna at the University of Strathclyde. Mm-hmm. Um, his team have been working very much on how to make these plasmas in the lab using thin foils and high-power lasers. And he's started to be able to make these plasmas last for a tiny fraction of a second. And so we've, we've been talking together about how we might bring the, the cosmic scale down to the lab and vice versa. Because clearly the universe has, knows how to do this. Physicists in the lab don't yet know how to do this, but it may have quite important implications for things like medical physics. Yeah, so if you could do that, for example, if you mm-hmm. could sustain one of these bursts... Mm-hmm. Theoretically, again, not your field, but you could theoretically create one in a in a lab, in a jar, or for example. Yeah. I think we wouldn't want to be producing the black hole in the lab or in the jar. Mm-hmm. I think what we'd very much like to do That's is... That's not the best place for a black it's hole. It's really not. Not anywhere near us, please. Um, <laughs> and I think we very much want to be able to produce uh, stable plasmas that we can control and manipulate. Obviously, in the lab, the thing you have the control over is the magnetic field and the pol- through the polarisation of the light. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we have different ways of approaching it. It's like having different pieces of the same jigsaw. So in the cosmos, I can only passively sense the physical processes. I can gather the light. I can diagnose the physics. I can't go and influence them. I can't no. fly out to a black hole and change the magnetic field properties. In the lab, we can do that. Mm-hmm. We can change the, the properties of the incident light. We can manipulate the plasma. Um, but speaking to Professor McKenna, you know, he was surprised. His team actually developed some new technology to try to observe this very short-lived plasma. So it's obviously technological developments help you make new discoveries. Mm-hmm. And they, they didn't expect to see that there. So that's what's very exciting about it. So I think there are many unknowns. And as we try to approach these different questions from different scales, different physical scales, different distances in different environments, whether it's in the lab or in space that information passes back and forward and we, we grow our knowledge um, and then we can see the applications. You get it. very very small pieces of the puzzle That's and right, very, exactly. you know, after yeah. many, many years you build your understanding That's of right, the cosmos. Yeah. And then, as I say, our, our place in the universe and also the technology development that goes into trying to address these big questions is also phenomenal. And the example is obviously gravitational waves. To detect gravitational waves... Um, has really driven our development of technology that we would never have envisaged we, we might have had to, to, to de- develop. So material science, quantum mechanics, optics, mm-hmm. um, all of the things that then go into making a detector that's sensitive enough to detect a tiny little wibble in space-time. I mean, these are big engineering teams really yeah. working at the forefront of global engineering and physics. So the measuring is, is used if you follow the example is you build all this stuff so you can measure these waves and in building that Mm -hmm. you have to develop new materials which then themselves can be used in other things and other applications so it's it's not just theoretical is it I suppose to look at it in in the act of looking requires you to create many great things yeah 
I think that's right, and I think when you look at the detection of gravitational waves as an example, to think that as a species we were able to conceptualise the question, discover the mathematics, write down the laws of general relativity, solve them to predict the existence of the gravitational waves and what properties they might have, and then spend, you know, a large team of people spent over 50 years trying to figure out the engineering to finally make, help us to detect and allow us to detect those waves. I mean, that coming full circle, I, I daily find mind-blowing that as a species we, we can do that. We, we've done good okay. for a bunch of hyper-involved yeah, monkeys. Exactly. <laughs> and to think 20,000 years ago, you know, our cave-dwelling ancestors were making sky maps and picking out important things on the sky and painting them on their caves. Mm. And just 20,000 years later, we're, we're unravelling the mysteries of space-time. It is incredible, and it would be remiss of me not to ask you about life beyond this planet while we're here. Um, I was going to tangine earlier when you were mentioning bursts. I was going to bring up uh, the fat burst, FRB. Fast radio bursts, yeah. That's the one, fast radio bursts, specifically 150807, which was referenced in uh, Guardian article, I believe, Mm -hmm. on you a couple of years ago. Could you explain what a fast radio burst is? So a fast radio burst, we don't know the origin of fast radio bursts, um, almost like the same history of, of gamma ray bursts. They were discovered by radio astronomers who were using technology to study spinning neutron stars called pulsars that were originally discovered um, by Professor Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell. And the way their technology works is they can actually split the radio waves up in terms of frequency and time. And so back in 1997, um, Professor Duncan Lorimer discovered what looked a bit like an atmospheric whistler in their data. So it's just a, a curved trail in their data. And he published that paper. And it was enigmatic for many, many years. And then teams of radio astronomers started to use giant radio telescopes like Arecibo, which is the big dish in Puerto Rico, or the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia, to survey the sky to look for these very brief flashes of radio waves. Um, Most of them don't repeat, and so we don't actually know what they are yet. We haven't found light at other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum yet. Uh, The one you mentioned is a repeater and therefore has been located to a galaxy and is is very mysterious. Um, Theorists have a number of different ideas about what they may be. Um, any article that I've written about them always ends up with a headline alien in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think astronomers, the, the jury's still out. I don't think we think that they're alien civilizations signaling to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just don't yet know what the, the natural origin is that would produce them. So the word alien here is not a little four-foot guy with grey skin and big black eyes. Alien, it just means alien in origin the same way you say something different that you don't quite understand is unusual or alien to you. So alien here, because I think that's what a lot of people get confused with. I think so, and I think also, I mean, radio astronomers also have programs and the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. That's um, SETI, isn't SETI, it? SETI, that's right, that's an international program, using radio telescopes to look for coherent signals that might signal intelligent life, um, are actually trying to, you know, have sent signals out from distant places in the universe. And I think, you know, that's a laudable goal and we should, we should push those frontiers. Mm-hmm. In terms of life generally, there are a number of... Um, space missions that are happening or are being proposed and being built and planned um, to try to figure out whether there are there is evidence of micro- microbial life on other planets, for example. Um, and the Cassini probe and the New Horizons mission, all of these incredible satellites that have gone out into the distant regions of our own solar system are really starting to break down the frontiers and really help us to understand whether, for example, liquid water ever existed on Mars or whether there could be life on moons like Europa. 
Um, so I think we have to start small and start off with microbes and bacteria before we get to uh, four-foot little green creatures signalling. Yeah. Just, just to know, because then at least you'd know. It would be incredible, yeah. Even if it was just one microbe. Absolutely. I, I guess that would be exciting. We're not alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah but I suppose that's it, isn't it? Yeah. Why do you think there is this fascination with living in space? I'll try and get through one of these podcasts without mentioning Elon Musk, <laughs> but this morning news has come out that he's got plans to colonise Mars. What do you make of that? Well, I think humans have always been explorers. I think that's why we, you know, we, we've advanced, we've always explored on our own planet, we've always looked up into the sky and tried to make sense of it. Um, so I think it's something our species is driven to do. I think we should certainly value the planet we've got because it's a pretty nice planet compared to the others out there. Mm-hmm. Um, Mars is a staggeringly hostile environment. I, I personally wouldn't be... a buying a ticket Um, (laughs) but I really admire the people who want to go and push that frontier in the same way that you know different ancient people decided to get on a boat and go across the sea I think it's something that's essentially you know human to push those those frontiers and try and figure out how to go to new places astronomy and astrophysics has allowed to do that allowed us to do that from the surface of the earth we've developed technology so that we can look into the distant edges of the universe where we never will travel to um Likely, certainly, certainly not in our lifetime, certainly not beyond that. These these regions are too far away. But I think the robotic probes that have gone to places like Mars and the other solar system planets have given us such a new view of our solar system. These are not just cold, dead planets that have had a very uninteresting past. We now have such a phenomenal understanding and a growing understanding of those planets that it's natural to have that curiosity to go and see what it would be like to uh, to set up colonies elsewhere. And I suppose if you don't have the um, the level of knowledge that maybe someone like yourself has, it's very easy to get carried away and say, well... Well, I'm very excited about it. I really admire the people who would like to do that and the very highly trained astronauts who are preparing to go on these missions. And again, it pushes our technology, it pushes our frontiers and our understanding of our own place in the universe and maybe the value of our own planet. Um, so I think it's, it's fantastic that these initiatives are there and they will continue, I'm sure, with, with much momentum in the future. And uh, good luck and I'll watch from the safe confines of the Earth, I think. You'll just get a, uh, a notification on your mobile <laughs> <It's> phone. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, one thing I did want to sort of pick your brains about, because you are uh, a woman, obviously, in uh, science, and there is a few issues about uh, women and the numbers of women mm. in STEM subjects, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I wondered if you had mm. a take on that. Yes, I mean, I think there's been lots of discussion sort of in the media, and it's it's a topic that remains current, really. I think... Um, We all have unconscious bias. We all have certain recognition of people who are like us. And I think that that limits our ability to do the best science, technology, engineering and maths because everybody has an ability to do this. And it's whether how we encourage people to develop an interest and how we support them coming through if they then choose to have a career in it. And if you look at, you know, a newborn baby, they're a natural-born physicist. They're a scientist. They're taking in data. They're comparing it with their internal model and they're adjusting that accordingly. And that might just be, so far I can only see my mother's face and then I can hear my father's voice or or whatever the environment is around. So I think we have these innate skills as humans. Um, How we then help people to develop those and see whether they're interested in pursuing you know that as a career is a big question for society 
And I think that, you know, there are a number of initiatives, for example, you know, the, the Twitter handle, Let Toys Be Toys. When you look right down at the, um, the youngest studies of psychology as to what kind of toys boys and girls play with or what toys boys and girls have played with from different generations and how that has then developed their interests, um, how teachers approach this in school, how we approach this at universities, whether we have role models, visible role models of success, um, that model different kinds of people that don't look like Albert Einstein, to be honest. Um, that's the archetype of a of a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of years ago, when one of my sons was quite young, he was three or four, we were talking as a family about something, and my husband made the comment about me being a professor. And my young son laughed really hard, and I said, what's funny, darling? And he said, well, you're not a professor, because professors are men. And I was absolutely stunned because I thought well this must be coming from some kind of popular culture some mm-hmm. program he's seen some th- some stimulus that he's seen because this doesn't come he has a live woman professor at home mm-hmm. <laughs> he now knows that that's um, you know a misconception of course but it was very interesting seeing that stereotype in such a young child it's um, very it's popularly uh, spread though isn't it shows like mm-hmm. uh, well I don't want to call me out but there are many shows Indeed. that feature primarily Male yes. scientific That's right. casts of a certain stereotype, yeah, exactly. And the women are always there to sort of bounce the jokes off or That's be stupid, right. give them yeah. something to explain to. Yeah, so we need to make a TV show where the women are all scientists. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> happy to happy to be on that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I think it's all of those sorts of things tend to reinforce stereotypes, mm-hmm. and it can be done at a very subtle level where. You know, people who are not represented in that stereotype then immediately absorb that this field is not for them. Um, and I think, you know, many of us are working very hard to break those barriers down and say, well, if this is something you're interested in, come do it. Um, and having more visible role models working in different ways in different areas, it's, it's good for everybody, for, for men and women um, of all different backgrounds, to not just have one specific kind of stereotype. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a recent study that was published that said that children as young as six identify with the stereotype of boys are innately clever girls have to work hard and that also is very damaging for the physical sciences where there is a perception that the physical sciences are harder than other areas and neither of those I think are true because all children have an ability to be curious as we're saying you want to colonize other planets that innate curiosity is very fundamental to science Um, It's not a cold, logical subject. It's actually a very creative subject at the frontiers of research. Yes, you need to learn the mechanics of it. Yes, you you follow the scientific method and you learn the, the mathematical basis. But when you look at, you know, eminent mathematicians, physicists, chemists, people are working in a very, very creative way. So we need to look more broadly outside of the stereotype of what a scientist is, mm-hmm. what the skills are that a scientist needs. You need all, all sorts of skills, both interpersonal and mathematical and creative. And that's, that's true for, for, for anybody, irrespective of their, their race or their gender. Absolutely, absolutely. It must annoy you when you hear about people like, uh, do you ever hear about flat earthers? <laughs> do, do, do you ever Google that? Spent an evening Googling that? Well, there are all, I think, you know, education has a big role to play in helping people to discover more about the world around them. And naturally, we interact with the world. And if we interact with the world in a certain way, that's what we, again, we're all scientific Mm-hmm. whether we're flat earthers or not we look and we say well this is my experience therefore this is the way the world must be and what science does for you is it then challenges those those prejudices and stereotypes and say, well that's a limited set of data you have but if I give you an extended set of data mm-hmm. 
can you now change your perception? And that, that's what we do in science. That's how we push the frontiers. Yeah, so you'd rather just, just give them the information to, to work it out for themselves? Well, I, I think evidence-based education is very is very important. I think whether that's working with politicians to set policy mm-hmm. at government level, whether that's in, interacting with the public and explaining the science that we do um, and why it's important and why it's interesting. I think at all levels, being able to say these are the data we've got, these are imperfect data sets always, imperfect theories, and this is how we put them together to draw this conclusion, this is the method that leads us there. Um, Science doesn't have all the answers because we don't have an infinite set of data and perfect theories, but we have a very good method for developing the path to get the evidence that then can advance our knowledge. And then it's ultimately up to people as to whether they grasp that knowledge or not. Yeah. And ultimately, boats disappear over the horizon, <laughs> yeah. I guess, at its most, <laughs> at its lowest level. Well, again, it depends if you're on the boat or you're not, right? So, again, it's all about where the observer is. If you, if you only ever stand on the shore and see boats disappear over the horizon, taking those data into your worldview, a logical conclusion is there's an end to the world. If you then decide to get onto that boat, again, back to our curiosity-driven exploration, if you get on that boat and go over the edge of the world and discover that actually you don't fall off the edge of the world, you grow your data set and you change your model. Professor Carol Mundell, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, I should just say, if you'd like to hear more from Carol about her research, you can join her at the Royal Society on Thursday the 2nd of November. That's Thursday the 2nd of November 2017. Uh, For the next event in our Discovery Series, tickets are £15 and include drinks and canapes, plus the chance to hear from more of our fantastic researchers, including Carol. You can book your tickets at www.com bath.ac.uk forward slash alumni it's been fantastic having you on thank you very much thank you i've been sam bradley this has been professor carol mandel